Welcome to episode number 139 of the Jackson Hole Connection, recording right here in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Support for this episode comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, reminding you to reduce, reuse, recycle, and compost. Avoid those single-use products whenever possible, and remember to bring your reusable bags whenever you go shopping. Additional support for this episode comes from Kilter Physical Therapy and Sports Performance Center. Each physical therapy session at Kilter is one-on-one with a licensed physical therapist. Every treatment session will allow ample time for individual evaluation, manual treatment, modalities, and appropriate exercise prescription for your personal needs. Kilter Physical Therapy, where function follows form. More information can be found at kilterpt.com. That is K-I-L-T-E-R-P-T.com. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I am Stephen Clark Abrams, your host. Thank you everybody for tuning in today. And for all of you new listeners, I appreciate you finding this podcast. My mission is to bring you fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. The people sharing their stories are the same people we see out and about at soccer lessons with our kids or walking around town, sipping on a good cup of coffee. I feel we all have a story to share and I wanna bring you stories which you will connect with and add good energy to your day. Sharing stories allows us all to learn and grow so we may all live full lives. And this week, my guest is Gordy Megros. Gordy's a local outdoor enthusiast who has international reach with his career as a writer. Gordy landed here in the Valley like many other folks have. It's the fault of the mountains. That's right, Gordy saw what the Tetons are and just couldn't pass up living in this beautiful place. Gordy carries some big name publications which have carried his stories in companies he has worked with. And all the while, Gordy is inspired to improve on the last story he has written. Gordy shares with us, people are hungry for good storytelling and good stories, and why writing for a living does not really feel like a job. Gordy, thank you for taking the time to sit here and talk with me here at the Jackson Hole Connection, and very nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. Let's start off with your connection to Jackson Hole. Uh, share it with everybody how that started and where you came from. Um, I moved to Jackson eight years ago. I've lived sort of uh, all over the place. I grew up in Vermont and lived there until I was, uh, you know, in college. Went to Boston College, uh, graduated from there in 98. Uh, went on to grad school at Emerson College in downtown Boston. Um, and then I um, ended up with an internship at Outside Magazine in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, which is sort of how my journalism career started, although my, my master's was in journalism at Emerson. And so I worked there for four years, sort of worked my way up um, from intern to uh, when I left, I was an associate editor. And then I, I took a job with Men's Journal Magazine in New York City. Um, and I was there for four years. And I actually really liked New York, but I, you know, missed, I'm, I'm, I'm an outdoor person and I missed, you know, easily being able to get outside. And, um, you know, Jackson was always a place that I had gone to. I think the first time I visited Jackson, I was a teenager. I had always liked it and uh, kept going back there. And when I left Men's Journal and, and started a, a full-time freelance writing career, I could sort of 
go anywhere I wanted. And so I, I thought that Jackson, you know, would, would be a great place to at least try. And, you know, like so many people, I, I went and tried and I stayed. Well, glad you stayed and been <laughs> able to find a way to stay here in, in Jackson Hole. Yeah. When you say that you started as a freelance writer and that's what enabled you to move to Jackson Hole, does your freelance writing take you on travels? Yeah, I, I travel quite a bit. By that, I mean that I didn't have to be in, a, in any particular place. I, I could live wherever I wanted to. And I work out of my home now. Uh, I tra- you know, before the pandemic, I was traveling probably every month to go work on a story or at least every other month to go report a story someplace. So it doesn't really matter where I live. I just need a, a you know a computer and a, a desk, really. And Jackson is obviously like an incredible place to come back to, but it doesn't I could be living in Tulsa or something. It doesn't really matter as long as I can get on a flight. And do you have a particular subject matter that you now that you're a freelance writer that you focus on and being somebody who loves the outdoors? You know, I do. I write a lot of outdoor stories. Stories. Uh, most of the stories I write are related to the outdoors in some way. That said, I'll write everything from profiles of business people to uh, athletes um, to. I write. I've actually written um, a handful of investigative stories as well, uh, and most of them do relate to the outdoors. But I, you know, it's not like a story about. A ski, you know, skiing or something. It's, it's like a, a it's got a, a little bit more heft to it. Well, tell me one or two of these investigative stories that you've written about in um, what was the impact of, of those uh, investigations? I wrote a story uh, probably six or seven years ago now about uh, this was a, this was in outside magazine. And it was a story about uh, a guy named Dean Ranke who owned a nationwide half marathon series. And he was basically what he was a con artist. And basically his con was to set up races all over the country. And half the time the races would go off, but they would be sort of poorly run. So people didn't exactly feel like they were getting their money's worth. But the other half the time he wouldn't hold the races at all. And he would just pocket the money and that would be it. There was really no way for these people to get their money back because in order to do so, they would have to sue him. And you know, it wasn't really worth suing somebody over a $65 or $100 entry fee. And so he had done this for years, like five or six years, he, he'd been in business running this operation. And I wrote a, a long, probably like 6,000 word profile investigation about everything that he had done over the years. And, you know, eventually he went out of business as he should have. He was, I no, no, nothing happened to him uh, legally, but, you know, it was kind of felt good to sort of vindicate people in that way. Yeah. Being a, somebody who used to run races before kids, that'd be disappointing to think that you signed up, you get excited that you have a race and then they just cancel and they don't give you your money back. Yeah. It was, it was a, uh, it was pretty awful. What he was, I thought it was pretty awful what he was doing to people. Um, and it became pretty apparent that, you know, what he was doing was 
it, it really was a, just a, a big con, a long con. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, pretty well documented through a paper trail and just anecdotal evidence. And how did you become aware of this to think about blowing his con to exposing his con? I was at, I actually, I was at a wedding and one of my friends said, uh, we were talking about something. I can't remember how it came up exactly, but one of my friends said, oh, well, you know, this woman who goes to my gym just went to go run a race in Falmouth, Maine, and they showed up at the race and there was nobody there. There, huh. you know, and I said, Oh, wow, that's interesting. Can I, do you mind if I, I talk to her? Can, do you have her number? And so I called her and she gave me the whole story. And once she told me who it was that uh, was holding the race, I, I went and looked into him a little bit. And there actually was quite a bit already on the internet from people who had tried to run his races and were complaining about how they had shown up and the race wasn't being held or how they had run one of his races and, you know, things weren't promised or things weren't there that he had promised. So I sort of started, started salivating because I knew that there was a a pretty good story there. Cool. Good for you, man. Good for you. What's, what's one other investigative story that you've done? Well, this most recent story, uh, it, I guess it's kind of an investigation investigation on my part, but it, it was more about an investigator. I wrote a, a piece for Wired that ran last year, and um, it's about a guy named Derek Murphy who owns a website. He's based in Ohio, and his website is called marathoninvestigation.com. And he looks into people who he feel have uh, cheated in distance. It's a coincidence, by the way, that these are both about running because Mm. I'm actually not really, I'm more of like a mountain biker and skier. I don't run that all that much. Uh, They just happen to be good stories. But anyway, Derek Murphy looks into people who are potentially cheating, uh, cutting courses in uh, distance races. And these are not people who are professional runners this is just an, a group you know just amateurs who who for whatever one reason or another feel that they need to cheat so i the story was really it was about well initially the story was really about how murphy uses technology and uh he sort of uh uses these like data caches and and all sorts of interesting um sort little techniques to prove that somebody has cheated in one of these races that's why it was a wired story because it was heavy on tech. One of the ways that I reported the story was that I went with Derek to try to bust somebody. He doesn't normally catch people in the act, but there was this woman who was a serial cheater huh. and she had the Guinness world record for most marathons run in a year and most consecutive marathons run in a year. And he knew that she had, she, well, based on his findings. He, he felt that she was cheating, but he couldn't get her records overturned. And so he felt the only way to do that was to go and actually catch her in the act of cheating. So mm-hmm. we went down to San Antonio, Texas, and she actually, she runs these uh, 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 marathons and half marathons right at this park where she lives near where she lives in San Antonio. And she, he, he felt that one of her biggest cons was that she would just insert herself into the results. And so we actually watched her during the race 
she didn't run at all. We were there all day, did not watch, did not see her. We actually went up and interviewed her um, during the race. She did, never ran anywhere. And then she did, in fact, insert herself into the results after the race. So, How did she do that? Oh, because it's her race. So she can, you know, she could do whatever she wanted to. Oh, she was putting the race she, on. She was the, yeah, she was the, um, the organizer. The organizer, exactly. Uh-huh. So she she put herself in the results. I had ri- I wrote the story, actually. It was pretty much done. And then something like very, very, very tragic happened. He had caught another person who was running a race in uh, Los Angeles, a doctor by the name of Frank Meza. And he had, you know, he, he did the same thing that he does with all of these people who he catches. He, he wrote about this person and showed all the evidence. And, you know, he's actually fairly journal- journalistic about it. He, he reaches out to these people and says, here's what I found. Do you have anything that can dispute this? And uh, Dr. Meza cut off communication with him. And Derek actually wrote several more stories about Meza. And he um, eventually, well, I don't know if I want to give too much of, of, of the story away, but he, something really, really bad happened. Okay. Um, and so I encourage you to read the story. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, we're, we're actually in the process of negotiating the film rights to this story now. So congratulations. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> so that story is in Wired Magazine. What's the right. title of that story? The so story somebody can in, find it. Yeah, the story in the magazine, it was in the March. March 2020 issue of Wired, and it was called um, uh, Across the Line. And if you're looking for it on, uh, online, it's, uh, it's got a different name. It's called uh, Going the Distance and Beyond to Catch Marathon Cheaters. So if you want to look at it, look, look, read it. You can read it for free online. And you said that you're negotiating with Wired. To make I'm a- actually wired and so when you write a story for Wired, which is owned by Condé Nast, um, you have a 50-50 share in the rights to the story. So Wired and I are negotiating with a film company. Fabulous. Well, I wish you guys all the best on yeah, that. Thanks. That'd be cool to see. Be yeah, great to I, think it, I think it'll make for a good movie. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure we're, we're going to get the, the deal done here uh, soon. So. You know, I think I've never actually sold a story to become a movie. So I don't I I don't know exactly how this works. But, you know, I I understand that half the time you sell the rights to a movie that the movie doesn't actually get made. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that this company seems really, really excited about it. So I I think it will get made. Well, maybe you just need to get some movie star glasses at that point. Yeah. Gordy. Being a journalist like you are and, and a professional journalist, what keeps you motivated and what keeps the ideas churning that enable you to put out um, material people want to read? Um, I just really like doing it. So I guess that's the biggest motivation. It's just, uh, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it, I guess it's cliche, but it's like one of those jobs that it doesn't really feel like you're working. Um, although it's not a sometimes job, then that's yeah. fabulous. Although so, sometimes it definitely feels like you're working. Um, like when you're sitting at your computer for 12 hours and you have, uh, you know, a frozen brain and can't get anything out. But, uh, uh, 
Yeah, I I just like doing it and I I feel like I am always trying to improve on my last story. You know, I read a ton of other uh, stories by journalists that I really like. And I think that when you do that, it, it just helps you become better. And so I, I'm just always trying to, to write interesting stories that, and I'm trying to improve the way that I tell the stories. So, so it's always, I don't think you'll ever, I, I'm not sure you, you would talk, talk to any writer who would tell you that they ever like, you know, got to the point where their work is perfect. So you're always sort of striving for that. And I think that keeps you going. That's awesome. Now, I like what you just said that you read other journalists to keep yourself sharp and yeah. get a different perspective from them. How much of your time do you feel that you work on creating a story, but then how much of your time do you work on improving your skill? Um, I think that I'm mostly working, doing my own work. I think that that. I'm not really, you, you know, I'm not doing any like writing. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing like, um, I'm not sitting there like, like consciously thinking about how I can improve my writing. It's mm -hmm. more like I'll be reading a story and I'll be like, oh, I like the way that they did that, you know, and, and that sort of just sticks in your brain. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm doing drills or anything to, to become a, a better writer. I'm just sort of absorbing what I, what I read from other writers. Sure. And, you know, just the curious of how much time do you spend reading other writers? Oh, I will read, I'll get, I'll be sitting there like doing work and I'll get stuck and I'll open, you know, the New Yorker or um, whatever. And I, I'll start reading a story and I'll read the whole thing. So that will, you know, whatever, 20, 30 minute story. Mm -hmm. So I'll do that. Like usually at least once a day <laughs> because I get stuck a lot. <laughs> Actually, I get like some of the, a lot of times when I get stuck, the, the best way for me to get unstuck is to go for like a mountain bike ride or something. And then I'll, I'll be able, I'll sit down and I'll be like, I was actually out uh, I was working on something recently and I just was sitting there basically all day staring at the computer and I just could not figure out how to, to get it, to, to write it. And my girlfriend said, let's go, you know, let's go cross country skate. So we actually went and skated up cash Creek mm -hmm. and I had to stop halfway through and ski back to the car because it all of a sudden it just came flooding into my head. <laughs> and I, I was skated back to the car and, and she kept going to the top of cash Creek and I skated back to the car and just sat in my car and wrote like three pair, three full paragraphs on my phone. Mm -hmm. So it just, you know, sometimes it just takes like getting outside and just getting your head away from it for a minute uh, to be able to do it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> And Cash Creek's a great place. We take the kids up there and the dog and my wife and I do a lot of trail running up there too. So it's, yeah. I, I agree. Just sometimes you just get this mental block, no matter what you do, just getting outside can just be so freeing. Um, do you listen to music or anything? I don't like listening to music because then I just yeah. let my mind flow. I can't listen to music. Well, I don't listen to music when I'm biking or skiing or anything. And I definitely, I can't listen to anything when I'm working. Like it just, I just, my, you know, I, I know a lot of people like to go to coffee shops. I can't do that. 
I can't, I just cannot like have any distractions around me. I'm with you. My wife said that in college she'd study at the coffee shop. I was like, there's no way I could. <laughs> no, no <laughs> I'm way. I'm too ADD. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I'd be looking all up, you know, I'd see some bit, one of my friends and I want to talk to them and there's no yeah. way I could do that. That's so true. Hey, Gordy, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from a sponsor, and then we'll be right back. I'm enjoying this. Thank you. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling wants to remind you to bring those reusable bags whenever you go shopping for groceries or out and about in town. Reusable bags are good for the environment and your wallet. Please remember to wash those bags frequently and bag your items whenever possible. Our community has already helped remove millions of single-use plastic bags from the waste stream. Now, let's reduce the amount of paper bags purchased too. Food waste composting, in addition to yard waste composting, is available at the Trash Transfer Station facilities. Call 733-7678 for up-to-date hours of operations. Welcome back, Gordy. I'm so engaged in this conversation. I'm I'm loving it. I'm curious about with your travels, um, of all the places you've gone, what is one or two places that you have experienced that you would recommend to people listening that they should certainly get out there and and go experience a particular location? Um, My favorite place that I've ever been is Japan, (laughs) which I'm sure a lot of people in Jackson, you know, have already been to Japan, but I just thought it was, you know, besides the fact that it just doesn't stop snowing there. I went in the in the winter, obviously to ski besides Mm -hmm. the fact that it does not stop, didn't seem to ever stop snowing there. It's just such a unique place. It's just, I just thought everything about it was so special. You know, even when you walked into the 7-Eleven that there were, uh, you know, it was just completely different than walking. You walk into a a 7-Eleven in America and you see like an old hot dogs and pizza, right? In the, and you walk into a 7-Eleven in Japan and they've got these like little rice ball, balls with fish in them and really like healthy things that you, we actually would buy that. We bought them and put them in our packs to go ski with, you know, uh, and that those were our little snacks and they felt super healthy. It, I don't know. Just everything about that place just blew my mind. I cannot, I actually wanted to go back this year, but because of everything, wasn't able to, but I'm definitely planning on, I'm hoping to go back next year. But uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I remember this one run where we, it was a little bit of a, it was like a quick out the gate tour uh, where we, you know, skinned or or boot packed. I can't remember for a little while. And then um, skied down this huge, probably like 2000 vertical foot, 40 degree slope. Um, and got to the bottom, you know, it was like overhead powder, got to mm-hmm. the bottom and there was this tiny little bar there that you pro- probably could fit like a dozen people in there and you walk, you just take your skis off, wa- walked right into the bar, had delicious Japanese food. I can't remember what we ate. And, um, uh, well, I mean, it, chances are I ate like my 80th bowl of ramen and then had, um, you know, this incredible Japanese whiskey, which whiskey connoisseurs will tell you is, you know, some of the best out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it was, yeah, just everything, the onsens, like, I I don't know, I I could go on and on about Japan. It's, I thought it was incredible. Right on. 
Now, why does Japan get so much snow? Not the, um, it's top a, of the place it's a, that you think of snow. They, they get, um, you know, they get these huge maritime storms, and in the winter, uh, it combines with this cold air blowing down from S- Siberia. Uh-huh. So, um, and I guess what happens is because Japan is an island, the storms hit it, and they just get stuck. So they just um, they just pound snow. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Now I've heard from a lot of writers before that over time that, um, either they write a book or or don't write a book. Is that in your wheelhouse that you're going to put together some of your experiences into book format? Well, I, I want to write a book. I definitely would like to write a book at some point, but I'm, I'm waiting for an absolutely incredible story. Uh, I did write I just finished writing a, a coffee table style book for National Geographic. And that is actually about skiing. It's called 100 Slopes of a Lifetime. And it'll cover uh, ski trails all over the world that n- made the list, not necessarily because they're the, the gnarliest, steepest, most exciting trails in the world. Some of them are. Corbett's is on there. But you know, others are on there because they pr- you know, present this incredible... Uh, cultural experience or the views are amazing, or uh, you can stop halfway down and have an authentic Italian meal. Um, hmm. It's a, they, they're, they're on there for all sorts of reasons. And they're, it was a, it's a, it was a cool project. It took me about 10 months. And um, I actually, I've skied all my life, but I, I learned quite a bit about skiing just from doing all the, the research on the book. And um, there's a, there's a lot of places uh, I probably have only skied 20, 20, 25 trails in this book. And there's a lot of places where I want to go ski now because just because they sound so incredible. That's cool. Yeah. And, and when does this book with National Geographic come out? It'll come out in October. And I think you can actually pre-order it on Amazon now. Okay, cool. And you said that someday you, you would like to write a book. Um, yeah, I'd like to write... I think my favorite stories that I've written are those in investigative stories. So if I could find a really cool investigation that um, is book worthy, I would write that book in a heartbeat. I just, I haven't found that story yet. Mm-hmm. And now that you're a freelance writer, how's that different compared to when you had the job at Outside Magazine? Did you have much leeway with what was being generated, what you were being asked to write about or? Well, when I was at outside, I was an editor. So I was mostly just editing other people's work. Mm-hmm. But um, every once in a while, I got to write a story, which was fun. I actually wrote, I guess my first, yeah, the, fir- the first time I ever got sent on an assignment was when I was an editor at outside. And they, I was writing a profile of Julia Mancuso, who was at the time, one of the uh, best ski racers that America had to offer. And um, she had just won an Olympic gold medal. She happened to spend her summers in Maui. So I got to go down to Maui and hang out with Julia for a few days, which was pretty, pretty great. Especially for, for a first, uh, for a first, you know, travel assignment. It was pretty amazing. Um, And then, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- I still write quite a bit for outside. I'm, I'm a contributing editor now, which is just a fancy title for writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, 
about, I don't know, half, most of the stories, I guess, you know, 70% of the stories that I write for outside are, are, are story ideas that I've pitched. And, you know, the other 30% are, are things where they'll come to me and they say, hey, can you, you know, write this for us? Uh, could be about anything. But, but the, the, yeah, the, the ones that I've actually liked writing the most are the ones that I come up with because they're, you know, I, I, I came up, you know, I, I pitched them because I liked the story to begin with. Mm-hmm. And with what happens in the news today and your writing, what do you think is happening or the direction journalism is going in today's current times? Um, yeah, I don't, that's a tough question to answer. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Um, uh, I think that it seems to me that there's still this huge, uh, maybe even more so now than ever, that, that, that people really are hungry for good storytelling and good stories. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that happens in a magazine or online, uh, or you know, it seems like people are way into the documentaries and docu series now. I, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure what the future of print magazines are. I hope um, that you know we still have print mag- magazines for a while because I really like. I, you know, I still prefer to. I get a subscription to the New Yorker and Wired and a couple other magazines, and I still prefer to pick up the magazine and read the story that way than read it online. I spend enough time in in front of my computer that I'd rather read a story that is not on my computer. So, um, but I don't know. I mean, to answer, yeah, it's, I, I think your question for me, anyways, <laughs> kind of too hard to answer because I just. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think it's sad to see a lot of these regional newspapers fold because they just don't have the the money anymore. The funding has dried up. I think that regional news is super important to keep, um, you know, governments, uh, regional governments in check. Um, and it, I think it's super scary that to, to see those uh, newspapers fold. I, I've seen magazines fold. Um, magazines I really like, but it's you know probably not as important that those exist as as it is the the newspapers. Um, but you know I'm a magazine person and I love long form journalism, so I'd like to see those continue for a long time. I'm I'm with you as far as enjoying reading something that you can hold, getting away from the computer. I I much prefer if I'm a read a, a book, I like to hold the book versus yeah. go in the digital format. The digital format's convenient in some aspects, but I just enjoy holding a book. I'm the same. I, I don't own a, a Kindle or anything. I, I still read the physical copy of the book. That's great. Yeah. And with your um with what you read, you, you mentioned some very iconic magazines. You mentioned The New Yorker and, and a few others. Do you ever go off mainstream as far as what you read just to get a different writing perspective? Yeah. Well, I follow this. I follow a couple, um, you know, I get newsletters from a couple, uh, I'm not even sure what, what you call them, but um, there's, uh, there's one called Long Form and one called Long, long Reads. Mm-hmm. And they're these. Uh, they sort of aggregate the the best long form storytelling for the week. Um, and they, yeah, a, a lot of times I'll open a story just because I'm I'm you know the, I find the 
the title, or the description of the story interesting. And it's in a magazine that I've never heard of before. <laughs> um, so those are, that's kind of cool. But I, um, I don't, uh, yeah, I guess I don't actively see, probably should, but I don't actively seek out those, those magazines or those uh, websites or whatever. And, and how do you re- receive the long form and, and oh, long read? You Is just sign up for it. So uh-huh. it's like, I think it's long, longform.com and longreads.com. You should, you can just go on their websites and you sign up for the, you can get a daily, I get a, I actually get a daily email from uh, both of them telling uh-huh. me what their favorite stories were for the week. That's awesome. Yeah. Or the day, I guess they do it each day. And for people that are thinking about, man, I, I want to be a writer. I want to start writing. What type of suggestions or advice would you give somebody? Um, When I decided that I wanted to do this, it was so different. So I I don't know if my, um, if my advice is uh, if if it really holds up, but it was huge back then. I probably still is, you know, if you, if you want to do the type of writing that I do that sort of the out in the outdoor journalism space, trying to get that internship, I think they call it a fellowship now at Outside Magazine. That was huge. Um, it was a six-month deal. I think it's the same. And you just go to Santa Fe where the office is and you just... It's really intense. They, they work you hard for six months. And I was lucky to get a, lucky enough to get a job out of that. I know that doesn't always happen for people, but it was just a, it was a good stepping stone for me. I, I learned more in that six month internship than I did in two years at grad school. And I thought my grad, my journalism grad school was actually quite good. It just having that hands-on experience is just, you know, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to work in newspapers, you would probably do the same thing and try to do the same thing at a, at a newspaper. For me, I always just, I loved, I've always loved magazines. And I've always in particular loved outside. Like I was reading outside. I think one of the first sto- magazine stories I ever remember reading was Into the Wild in Outside. I think oh, it was really? called like Death of an Innocent or something in the magazine. But, uh-huh. but yeah, I remember reading that story when I was in, uh, I might have even still been in high school. And you, you touched on something. You said things are different now compared to when you started. Mm-hmm. In, in what perspective is... Well, I think that there's less... Let, there's fewer opportunities out there mm-hmm. and there's seems to be more people that want to do it. So it's like, I don't know, you know, and also there's so, so much of so much journalism is done on the, on the web now. So there's like all these websites that I don't even really know that much about uh, outside is, uh, you know, I think probably half, if not more of the stories outside does these days go straight to the internet. Um, like I think they're only publishing six issues a year of the magazine. So it's just like a, it's just a very different climate. And I just don't know, you know, if when I went to outside, we were doing um, an issue every single month mm-hmm. and the, the, the website was kind of an afterthought. So it's just so different. I just don't, I would hate to tell if I were giving advice to a, a young journalist, like say say somebody who's coming out of school, college, or grad school. I would 
I don't know if I would feel comfortable telling them to do what I did because I don't know how that, I don't, I'm not sure what the best route is anymore. It probably, it can't hurt like those. It's a great learning experience. I just don't know if you, if it still uh, has the, the sort of the pipeline that it once did. And we'll always need journalists. It yeah. keeps, it keeps so much of society in check. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, you know, I, I actually am really fascinated by all these people doing documentary journalism. Like the, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, the documentaries and the docu-series I find fascinating. And like some of them are, have been a little bit junky, but other ones are, are pretty like incredibly well done, I would say. And so um, it, maybe if I had graduated from journalism school, you know, now... I might have gone down that route because of uh, I just think that they're they're potentially doing some of the better storytelling out there. Um, And it for me, like I like writing, but for Mm -hmm. me, it's really more about the storytelling than it is about the writing. Like this, I just really love good stories, no matter how they're told. That's fabulous. Oh, um, I'll let my son know that too because he doesn't stop reading. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. 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 I think he just loves information. And yeah. He loves I mean, I, and I think if you, you know, if you develop a love for reading at a young age, then you're probably going to be pretty in, in pretty good shape, no matter what it is that you go into. Yeah. Very true. Gordy, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and hearing what you're doing out there. If people wanted to follow you or get in touch with you, you know, having, um, you know, know when your book gets released, you know, the release date and, yeah. you know, have an idea of if um, you get the movie deal or not. Do you have a channel that people could follow and way people yeah, could get in touch I, with um, you? My, bo- my handle for both Instagram and Twitter is at Gordy, G-O-R-D-Y, Megro, M-E-G-R-O-Z. I also have a website, which is just GordyMegro.com. Though um, I tend to update that less frequently. <laughs> cool, yeah. cool. Well, for all, for all of the Instagram followers and uh, Twitter followers, they can they can look you up and yeah. keep uh, follow with you. And and I wish you all the best with that movie deal. I, I hope that comes to comes to contract and you get that done. And look forward to seeing the book that when it comes out in October. Congratulations! Yeah. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for your time. Have fun skiing and be safe out there and, and enjoy your next adventure and, and your next story. Thanks for, I appreciate thanks it. for great journalism. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Gordy. Take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Gordy and his upcoming book, visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 139. Thank you, everybody, who helps keep this podcast on the air. I really appreciate you all for sharing, inviting your friends to join in in the conversation and listening to these stories. Thank you to my editor and marketing director, Michael Morey, my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you.